The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, at the risk of uh, deeply confusing everyone, I'm going to do a sermon series within a sermon series, okay? That's why you pay the big money here at Fountain of Life. <laughs> this double layer thing, okay? What's going on here? Yeah. Okay, well, we've been going through 1 Peter, right? The Apostle Peter's writing to the churches all throughout what would be ancient uh, Turkey. Um, lots of Christians, lots of churches. So we, he's writing to those Christians, who've, people who've trusted their lives to Jesus Christ. And uh, if you've been with us um, the last few weeks, we've been seeing what he's calling us. You remember what he's calling us? Life as exiles. Very strange He's saying that to be a Christian is like being in exile, which means you don't belong. It means that where you live is not your home. Uh, Where you spend your days is is not ultimately where you're going. Um, You're in exile. So we've seen um, this, uh, this way of seeing ourselves, this identity is very important for understanding what this life is gonna be like. Uh, we've, we've seen four expectations. I want to go over them again, uh, but just real briefly. Four expectations of being in exile. Number one, you should expect not to belong. You should expect not to belong. I love America, the American dream. It's not true. You're not going to find heaven here. You're not going to find what you need in your career, in your family, in your wealth, in your youth, in your smarts, in your anything. You're, it's not going to satisfy you because this is not where you're made for. You can expect not to belong. Number two, you should expect to suffer. Bad news. Maybe you're watching TV. The TV preacher said, hey, now that you've met Jesus, no more suffering. Sorry, he was lying to you, right? You should expect to suffer. If you missed that sermon, I think it's two weeks ago. Check that out on an exile's perspective on suffering. Number number three, you should expect to be misunderstood. Uh, Sometimes it's thought, oh, if Christians were just nice enough, everybody would finally get it. It's not true. We we should expect to be misunderstood. The world around us, they won't always get and appreciate the values we have as Christians. You should expect that, and that leads us to the fourth one. You should expect the need to work to maintain your identity. You should expect the need to work to maintain your identity. Uh, We've seen in the the past few weeks how this idea of exile comes from places uh, in the Old Testament where God's people um, moved out of Israel into other other lands, other nations. Um, We could remember, uh, you think of somebody like Daniel in the Old Testament. You could could think about what it would be like for him as what, a 14-year-old boy probably taken out of Israel and all of a sudden dropped into this massive uh, culture, powerful nation of Babylon. Think of the pressures on that kid to become what? Babylonian. Massive pressures. It it was hard for him to maintain his identity. Say, you know what? I live in Babylon. I'll even work for Babylon, but I'm not at heart Babylonian. I belong to somebody else. I belong to, he would say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to need to work to maintain your identity. So that's the big sermon series, right? Life as exiles. Okay, now now here's the next one, okay? On that last expectation, you're going to need to work to maintain your identity. You tracking? I want to do, in the month of October, five pillars for the exile, okay? Pillars, foundations, things that hold you up, things that help you maintain that identity, things that make you who you are. Five pillars. Okay, you might be thinking, why are you doing this? Is anyone thinking that? Go ahead and think it. Why are you doing this? Let me tell you. Um, this, is the, this fall is the 500th anniversary of, drumroll, anyone know? The Reformation. That's right. That's right. Yay. All right. 500th anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther and a bunch of other leaders basically said to what was at the time very powerful institution of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Uh, Luther's famous words, here I stand, I can do no other. And history was forever changed. So I want to remember the five major pillars 
of the Reformation with you throughout the month of October. And I'm telling you, these are pillars for who you are as an exile. That's what I'm saying. Pillars for the exile. Now, maybe I lost some of you. Uh, You're like, oh my gosh, I came to church and he really wants to talk to me about um, something from 500 years ago in church history. You're like, oh my gosh, you're gonna... You're going to bore me to tears? Or maybe you're concerned, well, what is this about? You, you're going to bash, uh, bash Catholics for five weeks? No, no. Listen, I want to tell you, I'm not here to bore anybody or to bash anybody. Here's what I'm concerned about. What do you believe about the most important things of life? Do you have clarity on that? What do you believe about the most important things of life? Think of the question these reformers were trying to answer. Here's one for you. Is it important? What is life all about? What are you here for? How would you answer that right now? Write it it down on your piece of paper. Think about it for a second. How would you answer that question? What are you here for? Um, How about this question? Is Is your purpose, your purpose in life, is it something that you invent or is it something that's given to you? What's your perspective on that? Maybe write that one down or think about it in your mind. Is this, uh, is this something you make or is it something that's given? So that's one question they're after. Uh, what do you think? Is that an important question? What's life for? What's bigger than that? Second question they were after. What's our problem and how's it fixed? What's our problem and how's it fixed? Now this is interesting, right? Doesn't matter the religion doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter the nation. Doesn't everybody say humanity has a problem? Is there any debate over this? I can't think of one movement in the history of humanity where they're all like, everything's perfect. This is, this is, the, this is the common ground we all, we all can agree upon right here. We're screwed up. Okay, what is the problem? How does it get fixed? Is that an important question? That's another thing the reformers were after. Third one, this is the one we're going to camp on a little bit today. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know what life is all about? How do you know what the problem is and how it gets fixed? Do we just make these answers up? Um, Do we just follow the biggest crowds and the loudest leaders, the, the coolest commercials? Is there an authority so strong that you could trust that would answer these questions that you could actually know? Is that, a, is that an important question? How do you know? What's your authority? Today, we're thinking about that question. How do we know? What is our authority for life? And this is huge because authority for your life, how you know what you know, what you trust, um, It's like a vacuum that will be filled. What I'm telling you is, you have, right now, an authority. I'd like to give you 30 seconds for you to name that to yourself in your mind. Who do I listen to that tells me, for instance, what I should hope in? Right? You're building your life on these things you hope in, you're longing for. Whose voice is telling you what that is? Whose voice is telling you Uh, What's most important, what you should pursue? What's your authority? Maybe somebody might say, well, it's myself. I'm my own authority. Okay, but just name it. Know that. Maybe it's it's, it's my religious tradition. It's my parents. It's my, what is it? It's uh, People Magazine. If I just had lives like those people. What's your authority? That's the question of today. What's the authority? How do we know? And so the reformers, Protestant Reformation, they were trying to answer this question. What's the authority? And this is our first pillar for the exile. You want to learn a little Latin? Yes, Matt. That's why we came, right? That's why we came. Sola Scriptura. Can you say it? Sola Scriptura. What does it mean? Scripture alone. It means Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. So here's three things I want to see with you this morning. What is it? What is just a little bit about what Sola Scriptura means, and and a teeny bit about what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? What does it not mean? And then I want you to see from 1 Peter, um, Peter's perspective on Scripture. What does he think? And we're going to see two major things from him. 
what God does for you through Scripture and what God wants you to do with Scripture. So three things. Sola Scriptura, what does it mean? Then two things from Peter. Number one, what God does for you through Scripture. Number two, what God wants you to do with Scripture. All right, you tracking? Good. I'm going to look over here for the rest of the sermon. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify this little history lesson for you way too much. I got, I got a slide of a book cover here. Uh, this book is called Why the Reformation Still Matters. And if you're thinking, huh, this is kind of interesting, I'd like to learn more, I really want to recommend this book to you. It's uh, really accessible, give you some good historical background, uh, give, you, give you more depth on these ideas and why they're important today. So that's why the Reformation still matters. But for this morning, we're just, just going to do a little bit here. Something happened with this monk named Martin Luther, and he began to discover through this long kind of soul-searching process that the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church of the time, of which he was a part, very much a part, that he began to see more and more and more about how those teachings and practices seemed to contradict with the teachings of Scripture. They seemed to contradict. What do you do? And so we could, we could go through some of those teachings and practices. Maybe we'll mention some in the next few weeks. Veneration of Mary, sacrament of penance, indulgences, how to get right with God. All these are really important things, right? Really important ideas. We should investigate them. We should listen. We should come to our own conclusions. But the biggest question underneath all these other ones is, who says, Right? Who says? How do you know what you should believe and what you should do or not? Who says? And so they, Luther ran into a wall where a choice had to be made. On one side, the beliefs at the time of the Roman Catholic Church. Now I want to quote for you um, from the Roman Catholic uh, Catechism from 1992. So this is fresh, right, as far as his church history goes. I want, I want you to see what they say about what our authority should be. So look at this slide. Here's what the catechism teaches. Uh, the church, they say, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Did you see that? Not alone. Then what does it say? Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Then they continue. The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. So that's what they believe today. And that's what they believed back then. And so Luther had to make a choice because what he was reading in Scripture did not seem to fit with what the church was teaching people should believe and practice. What do you do when Scripture takes you one way and the authority in your life takes you another? That's the question. What do you do? John Calvin, how many of you all know that name? John Calvin, this is how he describes the difference. Look what Calvin said. The difference between Protestants and Catholics is that they, he's talking with Catholics, they believe the church cannot be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the word of God. We, and now he's talking about Protestants, we on the other hand assert that it is because the church reverently subjects herself to the word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. Do you see the difference? One side is, the Roman Catholic version is, our authority is scripture overseen by church tradition. So in some, some of this language they're saying, well, it's equal. In other language they're saying, well, uh, tradition really kind of oversees scripture. Tradition is the ultimate authority. So in a way... Uh, they seem to be saying they stand over the scriptures. 
The reformer said, no, it can't be. It can't be. Now, the reformers didn't want to throw out all church tradition. Oh, no. Oh, no, they found church tradition very valuable. You learn from Christians of the past. But they've said, we cannot make tradition the ultimate authority. Why? Because we screw it up. (laughs) We're flawed. The ultimate authority needs to be, what do the reformers say? Scripture is the ultimate authority. So what we're saying here with Sola Scriptura is um, we don't stand over Scripture. Scripture looms over us. And we surrender to it, and we surrender, um, we, we submit to it. So uh, maybe you've seen on our sign, we're reformed, okay? We're getting at, that, that, that word means some of these pillars, these things we believe. We believe that Scripture is our ultimate authority. But, but it, this idea also kind of makes us think our, our, we should be Christian reforming church. Do you see the difference between reformed and reforming what does reformed seem to tell you? We already made it, okay? How many of you, you've already made it? You got it all down? Me neither. When we say scripture is our authority, we're saying that as we look to it, what do we want it to be doing in us? Always reforming us because it's our ultimate authority. So, Sola Scriptura is what the reformers taught. That's what we believe here at Fountain of Life. Let me tell you a little bit about what Sola Scriptura does not mean. Sola Scriptura does not mean me by myself with a Bible. I remember, uh, remember the, what was the old restaurant over here? Caro's, right? I had a meeting there over coffee once with somebody who was going through the Bible in great detail, proving to me why his drug habit was just fine according to Scripture. <laughs> Sola Scriptura, baby, right? Him and the Bible. Ah! You ever looked into the debates on American slavery? Guess what book people used a lot to prove that slavery was a great idea? The Bible, okay? Every nut job in the history of the world loves to quote the Bible. Don't you love every political season? Guess what both sides are quoting? The Bible, Oh my gosh, right? Guess who quoted scripture when he was tempting Jesus Christ? The devil, okay? Everybody wants to use the Bible for their own purposes. So that means we should humble ourselves a little bit, right? Sola Scriptura doesn't mean, hey, me and the Bible by myself, I'm gonna gonna make it work however I want for whatever I want. No, 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 no. Sola Scriptura means, uh, it means we really wanna learn Uh, like what the author meant when he wrote what he wrote. It means we really want to think about what it means to apply it to our lives today. It means we use scientific and experimental knowledge to help us understand the scriptures. Yes, we do. We use that. We use history. Yeah. We use grammar. Yeah. We use context of what else is going on in the book. Yeah. We use other scriptures. Yes, we do. We listen to what church tradition has taught Yes, we do. We listen to all these things so that we can do our best to understand what Scripture means. But here's the dividing line, right? Martin Luther faced it. The church he was a part of had beliefs and practices he found. They confronted with what Scripture said. He thought about it. He researched. He listened. And in the end, he said, here I stand. I can do no other. He had to make a choice between, uh, he had to make a choice about which authority would own him. He had to make the choice. And so that choice is the choice you have to make today as well. You're probably not, maybe you are, I don't know. You you may or may not be struggling with whether or not uh, the Roman Catholic Church is your authority. Probably not if you're here this morning. But aren't there other authorities that climb in that want to own you? What our culture believes, expects, friends and family, workplace, we run into the same decision Luther and every other Christian does, which is this, what's your authority for what you believe and how you live? And a pillar for the exile is what, say the Latin with me, sola 
Scriptura. This is what sola scriptura means, according to Reeves and Chester. What, script, what sola scriptura does mean is that when we have to choose, there's only one choice we can make. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And in particular, it's the supreme authority in contrast to the authority of the church and its traditions. Is Scripture your authority? You know where I face this battle the most? Is my own head and my own heart versus Scripture. You know where I face this challenge the most? It's not from outside forces. It's my anxieties versus Scripture. It's my fears telling me I'm not enough. How could God love me versus Scripture and God's promises? Does Scripture own you? Sola Scriptura says, this is the pillar for our lives. Hey, we know uh, Peter, he wasn't facing uh, this debate, right, uh, between Protestants and Catholics as he wrote 1,500 years before. But I want to see some things about what Peter believed about Scripture with you. We look with me, uh, look at verse, chapter 1, verse 22. A few things Peter believed about Scripture. Look what he says in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your, what, obedience to the truth. Scripture is what? It's truth. What does this mean for you? It means that the story of the Bible is the story of reality. Do you know that? The story of the Bible is the story of reality. God created everything good and it's beautiful and clean and right. We fell into sin. That's the problem. But God is working as a story of redemption to save us and bring us back to himself. He's done that in Jesus Christ. And one day Jesus will return and restore it all to bliss and perfection. That's the true story of the world. Do you believe that? Does your story fit into that? The Bible is the true story. It also means that the God of the Bible is the God you'll have to deal with. He's the God you'll have to face. The God you'll meet one day. The real and true God. Scripture is true. It also means God's promises are the bedrock of our lives. Peter believed this. The scriptures are the truth. I do want to say here, if you're struggling with how scripture can be true, I want to recommend another book to you. So we're being reformers. Nerd Sunday, right? I'm throwing all these books at you. This book by Craig Blomberg, Can We Still Believe the Bible? If you're like, what about all the contradictions? What about all the translations? What about all these questions? Those are good questions. If you want to get coffee with me, I would love to hear you out and talk about that with you. Love it. If you want to read a book, try this one on. Can We Still Believe the Bible about the integrity of Scripture? The Scripture's true. That's one thing Peter says. Look what else he says about Scripture. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, Peter says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and then look at this next phrase, through the living and abiding word of God. What did he say about the word of God? Two descriptions. It's living, and it's abiding or enduring. That's a powerful thing to say about a book. It's alive. Uh, if you're a Christian and you read the Bible, you know this. What does the Bible do with you when you read it? messes with you, messes with you, it kicks you around. You know, I've been, I've been honored to be a pastor for 13 years, I think. I preach from this book every Sunday, every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time we look at it together, we're all like, wow. Can you imagine trying that with any other book? Pick your best Shakespeare. Can we preach from it every week and have it hold up for us? No way, Th this book it is alive, the Holy, this, because it's God's word. The Spirit still uses it, speaks through it. It's living. It's also enduring. You see Peter quoting from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass, glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withered, the flower falls. The word of the Lord, how long does this mess last? Forever. It's enduring forever. It doesn't change don't you love that? You ever, ever, have you been able to travel at all? Or if you're a history buff, you realize how much worldviews, cultures change from place to place, time period to time period. That's why it is mind-boggling to me to see that this book, which was written over how many years, you think? 
I'm gonna mess up a little bit, like 1,500 years. Um, bunch of different authors, a bunch of different cultures, four different languages over a vast amount of time. And they said, and it's the same idea all the way through about every issue. Do you understand how hard that is? Have you ever even looked at your journals? Do you always think the same thing about the same issue? I change from like week to week. For the Bible, with, with this kind of vast uh, depth behind it, for it to have consistency in what it's about and what it says, amazing. It lasts forever because the, the one who wrote it, he lasts forever. And he doesn't change. This book is living and enduring so scripture is true, Peter says. It's living and enduring. It's God's word, Peter says. And then number three, look at chapter two, verse three. I guess verse two of, uh, chapter two, verse two, Peter says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If you've indeed, what? Tasted that the Lord is good. What do you think about that word taste? I had, um, you guys ever heard of Mel's Diner? It's just over here on Bouchard and uh, Warner. They literally have the best cinnamon rolls in the world. In the world. I've traveled to many places in the world. I've tried a lot of cinnamon rolls. They're the best. Okay. I can tell you about them. They're kind of, they're, they're fat. And they've got this glaze on them. And it's that perfect mix of like, it's gooey, you know? And they put too much butter on it. Um, and you, if you eat that thing warm, it's life-changing. <laughs> okay? Uh, people have converted from eating Mel's cinnamon rolls because they're like, there can't be this much beauty and goodness in the world and not be a god. Now, I'm telling you about it, right? Imagine you've never had a cinnamon roll. I'm telling you about it, and now you have a concept in your head. Oh, yeah, a cinnamon roll, it's kind of like twisted and round and sweet and stuff. There's that, and then there's, right, you put your fork in it, pushes in, and then you... Now what have you done? You've tasted it. There's a difference between knowing about something and tasting it. And when you taste it, you go, mmm. You don't say that when somebody tells you about it. You say that when you taste it. There's an experience, and this is the best part of the word of God. Peter's saying here, through, God, through God's word, that's how you taste that God is good. Oh. That's why this book is so precious. We don't worship the book Here's how the book works. C.S. Lewis had an illustration, okay? Imagine you go into uh, an old barn or a shed on a sunny day, okay? You walk into this barn or this shed, and there's a, there's a hole in the ceiling. Or the, and, uh, and through that, you know, if you're in this dark barn, what would, what, would that, what would that look like? You would see this beam of light, right? And if you stand over here and you looked at it, you could see the beam of light. And that's kind of like the first step of reading the Bible, I, concepts or ideas are in your mind and you're, you're looking at the Bible. What does this mean? Is this true? What is it saying? Important stuff. You can't skip it. But to put your faith in it, to trust it, that would be like walking over to that beam of light. Instead of looking at the beam of light, you're standing in it and you're looking up at that hole through the ceiling and now what do you see? Um, you see blue sky. You're in it now. The Bible has this power that when you believe it, you taste the goodness of God, the beauty of God, his grace, his love, his holiness, his majesty. That's what the Bible does. Nothing else does. It's his word through which you taste. It's a doorway into a relationship with the God who has spoken. 
That's what Peter believes about the scriptures. True, living and enduring the doorway to know God himself. Can his view of scripture get any higher? Can it get any bigger? I mean, this is the most precious thing we have. That's why we say sola scriptura, because nothing else is the word of God. Nothing else is perfectly true. Nothing else is a faithful standard for all cultures and behavior, and, uh, and nothing else can lead us to know and taste God himself. Do you see? Scripture, your authority. Let's see what it does for us. I want to see just a little bit about what God does for us through the scriptures. Look now at verse 23. What does Peter say to believers in Christ? Since you have been, what? Born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, through what? Through the living and abiding word of God. So what, what happens to Christians through the word of God? Born again. Born again. Do you see his little uh, illustration he's got here? Seeds, something being born uh, he's, from Isaiah, the grass withers. So a plant, a seed falls into the earth, uh, grass grows up, and then what happens to it? It dies. And then Isaiah says, people are like this. When a man loves a woman, right? And that's what he's saying. The seed is planted, and what's born? A baby. Awesome. What happens? We die. We're just like grass. We get this much time. Some of you are young. You have everything in front of you. That's so awesome. Enjoy it. Some of you are like, huh, just wait, right? Um, I'm 41. I'm, some of you think I'm young. Others are like, that's old. All I know is the older I get, my view of how huge my life is going to be keeps going like this. I am like grass. Don't you feel like grass? <laughs> eh. But something happens when this different seed is planted. Peter says, this is the word that was preached to you. Verse 25, look what he says. This word is the good news. The good news that was preached to you. What's the good news that the word is all about? The person, the work of Jesus Christ, right? It's preached to you. And so you hear this word. God, has, God doesn't want to leave us in our rebellion and our brokenness and our sin. And so he's come to buy us back. He's, he's come to win us back. And the good news is Jesus has come for you. The Son of God put on flesh. And he lived a perfect life for you. So that if you will trust him, his perfection is counted as yours. And God the Father will look at you and, uh, as if you've never messed it up. The good news is that Jesus took a cross for you in your place and that he was punished for all your rebellion, all your sin, all your lack of love. And if you'll just trust in him and look to him, what will God the Father say about you? Forgiven, washed clean. The good news is that Jesus rose from the dead and that sin has lost and death will lose and one day he'll renew all creation, and it's yours. You can have it as a child of God, as an heir of the kingdom. If you'll just trust in him, it's yours. Isn't that good news? It's all free. It's all a gift, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from. It's yours if you trust in him. This good news, and if you believe that seed, right, if that goes into your ear, into your mind, you believe it and you taste it. You mean God loves me like a child? You mean God loves me so much he sent his son for me? God loves me so much he's forgiven me that if I trust in Jesus, everything is taken care of. I belong to him. Oh, that's good news. Can you taste it? If you believe it, the seed is planted. And even though this body fades away like grass, this new self that you have as a child of God it's imperishable. It lasts forever. You belong to him forever, and it never stops, and it never ends. It's undefiled, unspoiled. It's yours. You're his forever. 
If that's true, is there anything better than that? And how does it happen? Through the Word. God has done that for you through His Word. Can you remember it? Some of you, you were born in a Christian family. You, you remember times of like heating up in your faith. Can't ever remember not having it. Others of you, you, you came to Christ later as adults. Can you remember what it was like? You didn't care before, right? You'd heard about it before, you didn't care. And then something happened and you went, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, I need him. And he's beautiful, I want Jesus. Jesus, let me belong to you. You were born again. And it'll never stop, it'll never end, it won't get old. It's yours forever. Aren't you glad God's done that for you through his word? Me too. What does God want you to do with his word? Our last point for the day. What does God want you to do with his word? Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your, what? Obedience to the truth. How many of you are a big fan of this word, obedience? My little guy walks around, obey daddy, obey daddy. Took a lot of work, right? Obedience to the truth. Our culture hates this word, okay? Think about, think about American culture. We got big remnants of materialism. You know what materialism is? Everything is material. Atheism, ag- agnosticism, whatever. But life is here and now, secular, here and now, okay? That means what's the ultimate purpose in life? Well, there's not, there's not one, I guess. Survive, um, survival of the fittest. Dominate your enemy to Spread your genes? I mean, is that as high as we can get with this? Um, What it means is that you'll have to invent your own purpose. You'll have to make it up. So who do you need to obey in that case? Your feelings, I guess. Our culture also has remnants of Eastern religion in it, right? Where Where do you look to find the truth? Within. Look within. Do whatever makes you feel happy. Who do you obey in that scenario? Self, the problem is, well, what if neither of those things are true? What if there's a personal God who is good and love and beauty and he made you? Think about how you handle natural law. What do you tend to do? I don't mean when the light's orange, right? Because if it's yellow, turn it to red, I still got time, right? If it's been red for a while, what are you probably going to do? You don't need to have a doctorate in physics, right? What do you know happens when cars smash into each other? It's a law, right? It's a natural law, and you respect that law. Uh, Is it true whether or not you believe in it? Okay? You stand on the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon. You respect that that law called gravity? Don't you want to jump off and be like, gravity's not true for me? (laughs) It's not true for me. It doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel right. I make my own way, okay? You respect that law quite a bit. It's your obedience to the truth. Hey, and when you understand gravity, you can do things like fly airplanes. There's freedom in that because you understand the design of the universe. Folks, what if the moral law is like that? What if there's a personal God who's always loved what is right and truth isn't about being chained. It's about finding what you were made for. If you take a fish to the top of the mountain, he's going to die. Why? He's made for the water. Is the water constraints for him or is it freedom? Because that's where he belongs. If you are made by a personal and a holy God, Obedience to the truth is to find your design and flourish as a child of God according to how he's designed things. And so Peter says to these people, you've been purified by your obedience to the truth. He's talking about conversion. They've heard the truth about Jesus Christ and they obeyed it by repenting, by believing in him. It's washed them clean. But that's just the start, right? What do we do with God's word if we belong to Christ and we have the new birth? What do we do with it? We, go ahead and say that hard word, obey. We obey, and it's our freedom. 
Where do you need to obey the Word of God? Where do you need to obey? Pick one thing that's practical for you, for you this week. Is God telling you anything? Where do you need to obey? That's one thing we do with his word. Look at the second thing we do with his word. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, what's the next command? Do you see it? Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, what? Long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up. What do you think the milk is in context? It's scripture. What does that word long mean? Uh, we've got a few babies in the room, right? Anybody ever seen a hungry baby? Are they casual about it? Um, are they like, you know what? I didn't have time today to eat. I was busy doing other stuff. I've never heard that one. When they're hungry, they have one major goal in life. The rest of the world can, can burn. They need to eat. Do they ever say, oh, mom, are you sleepy? I'll wait. Oh, are you busy with other things? Don't worry about it. Or are they like, feed me now. Feed me now. I think you see the illustration. You belong to the Lord. Have you been born again through the word? What should your heart be towards scripture? Feed me now. Uh, in our morning prayer, we looked at Psalm 119. That psalm and many other psalms compare scripture to treasure. Imagine we had like a new outreach program as church. We got an endowment. And I'm like, I will pay you $100 every time you read the Bible for 30 minutes. How many of you would sign up? What would, uh, me too, brother. I would sign up. <laughs> That'd be the sweetest job. Actually, I get to do that. Thank you. <laughs> right? Right? That is my job. I know. I know. You would find that maybe you did have time to read the Bible. Maybe you did have time. Uh, one of my favorite John Piper quotes is, uh, Facebook will serve on Judgment Day to show us that we really did have time to read the Bible. Uh, is reading the Bible like, like uh, raking leaves or like mining for gold? Raking leaves, how hard? It's boring. It's not hard. And what, but what do you have after all that hard work? It, what, leaves. Mining for gold is a different kind of work. You gotta dig, you gotta push, you gotta think, you gotta, you gotta take time, you gotta invest, you gotta meditate. What do you get? Gold. Look, this is a take your pulse kind of verse. How much are you hungry to taste the goodness of God through his word? This is a motivation phrase. It's a motivation phrase. Do you long to know and taste God's word so that you can grow in your relationship with God. It's purely motivation. Because guess what? If you long for it, guess what you'll do? You'll read it. You'll meditate on it. I know some of you, you're like, I'm not a reader. Reading's hard. Are you hungry? I know a lot of you, you're busy. I am too. Are you hungry? Because what does God want you to do with the word? Eat. Taste. Is it because he's like, you better do this or I won't like you anymore? What does he want you to taste? It's right here. Tasted that the Lord is good. Good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His grace, his beauty. Taste it. Long for it as food. Here's the last one for the day. So number one, obey it as truth. Number two, long for it as food. Number three, look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a what? Sincere, brotherly, what's the next word? Love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, brotherly love then what's the command? 
Love one another, how so? Earnestly, from a pure heart. In verse 22, he's saying, you have what you need to love. You've already purified your souls. You have what you need to love. What is that resource, by the way? Where do you get the resources for what you need to truly love? It's in the gospel, right? How does God feel about you in sending his son for you? He loves you. He loves you. How loved are you? How loved are you? Does God know all your mess, all your doubts, all your fears, skeletons in your closet? Does he see that? Did you have to earn his love? What's the proof of his love? While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He died for you. That's how loved you are. You're loved and, and you've been adopted as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. How loved are you? Your love, does it, does it stop? Does it end? Does he give up? No, he's going to keep you. He loves you. You are loved. Because you are loved, now what? Love. Okay, let's test this a little bit. Should you love others based on how well they love you? But that's the way we play it, isn't it? Hey, I'm going to try this church. Oh, they're friendly. Oh, they hurt me. Um, I'm out. That's what happens when you love other people based on how they love you. What relationships will be left if that's the way we play this? Zero. You need resources for your heart? Look to his love for you in the cross. And when you have that, now you're ready to love one another. Look, God, Jesus isn't telling you to do anything he hasn't done for you. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's how Jesus loves you. Earnestly. What does that word mean? There's oomph to it, right? Love one another earnestly. A brotherly love. What does that mean? It's got, it's got flavors of friendship, of family in it, of enjoyment of one another in it. Love one another like family because you've been brought into God's family. Love. Look at chapter two, verse one. We gotta put some things away. You got any of this stuff? You ready to have a character garage sale? That's what we're doing here. A character garage sale, character bonfire. We got stuff to burn. You ready? Two, verse one. So put away, what's the next word? Just help me out. Well, before that, put away all. Okay, you ready? Total sale. You gonna keep any of it? Like a little pet chihuahua shaking in the purse? Just keep it, hide it under your arm. You gonna keep any of this? You gonna get rid of all of it? Yes, put away all malice. What is it? Desire to get somebody back. Come on, look, look in your heart, look in your mind. Who do you wanna get back? I'm not saying you wanna go like hit them. Maybe you do. But you, you're too nice for that, right? You're too... You're too evolved for that. So how do, you, how do you do malice? Cold shoulder, maybe? Hard word? Hit their button? What are you gonna do with your malice? Get rid of it, put it away. Why? Because you've been loved by the Lord Jesus. Put away all malice, put away all deceit. And this word is like uh, being crafty, manipulating people for your purposes. You find it easier to love people when you feel like they can offer you something? Oh, they might be able to connect me to the job, or they look cool and I wish I was like that, or they, they seem to know other people I'd like to know. I'm going to buddy up to them and, oh, I love you. Or, do you love them or are you using them? Put away the deceit. Love them sincerely. Want their best interest. Be interested in them. Despite their deserving, why? Because you've been loved. Put away hypocrisy, no more agendas. Put away envy. Why do you need to put away envy when it comes to love? It's hard to love somebody when you're comparing yourself to them. And you wish they had, you wish you had what they had. You feel bitter toward them, you feel distant toward them. You can't love when you're envious. Put it away. Slander, you gotta put that away too. What's slander? Dropping bombs about other people. 
Do you see some amazing things here about how we should be different from the world? Look at all the controversies that are out there. What you do with the flag. What side of political aisle you're on. What you believe about this, that, or the other. Folks, if we have been born again by the word of God, if we know the unconditional love of Jesus Christ for us, what should happen to the way we view and treat other people? We have to love with the love we've been loved, right? Get rid of this stuff, slander, envy, hypocrisy, deceit, malice, and love one another earnestly, sincerely, because we've been loved. So what, what did we just do? Uh, you heard this song? Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the, for the Bible tells me so, okay? A pillar for your exile is what's your authority, your ultimate authority for what you believe and how you live? Scripture alone. Scripture is God's word. It's true. It's made you alive. It's the way you know him. Scripture points you to the gospel. Through scripture, God has brought you to himself. And what does God want you to do with his word? Obey it. It's what you're made for. Number two, long for it. Go after it. Read it. Meditate on it. Number three, do it specifically in how you love one another. Make sense? Let's do it. Let's pray. Our God, help us feel your love for us. Help us uh, trust your word and not just uh, say we believe it, but taste it and know you through it. Will you help us this next week, Lord, to seek you, to pursue you, Lord, to find you, and help us treat your word uh, as you desire, Lord. Let us be hungry so that we can grow. Father, we pray that our love for one another uh, would be pure and genuine, Lord, not because we each deserve it, but because you have loved us in this way. Lord, let us continue to enjoy and feel this love as we take the Lord's Supper together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.